Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Uh, in 1717, uh, when France's King Louis XIV died, uh, his body was placed in a coffin that was entirely made of gold. He had, throughout his life, called himself the Sun King, and to dramatize his own personal glory, he arranged that his funeral at the local cathedral would remain entirely unlit, well, entirely with one exception. There was a large candle that was set right above the king's gilded coffin. As thousands waited in the hushed silence, the bishop officiating at the service began to speak. And slowly walking toward the coffin and reaching toward the candle, he snuffed it out with his fingers and said, only God is great. It's a sober epiphany for the Sun King. Too bad he wasn't alive to see it. Uh, But one man also discovered this unavoidable truth that we will all discover. And he discovered it the hard way, and his name was Joseph. And the story of Joseph begins in the sun and in gold, and actually concludes in the sun and in gold. But it is a story which from its very start is infected with the soul viruses of favoritism and egotism. And I'd like to speak about those soul diseases of favoritism and egotism with you this morning. So why study Joseph? Why now? Why move through this great and long Old Testament epic? Isn't it, after all, just an obscure bit of history about a fancy coat? I don't think so. I think this story is written in eternal ink. I think it offers timeless wisdom. I think it can actually help every person here. I think that if we dive deeply into what the word actually has to say, then and now, we'll find that our most devastated relationships begin to recover. I really believe that. And so, why? but why now? I think this is a tale for our times. I think that it was inspired for all moments, but it seems especially poignant for this moment. After all, it involves the very things we're always talking about. It involves the subject of privilege, who has it, who doesn't. It offers you a Me Too movement moment with sexual assault, at least from Potiphar's wife. It offers political scandals when Joseph served as a governor in Egypt and was then thrown into prison. It involves a heck of a lot of family dysfunction, issues of wealth and poverty, Issues of national crisis, like a famine. Let me now speak about favoritism. And uh, we've all experienced this to one degree or another. Either you've been regarded as a favorite, you've been given privilege, you've been given a special status, somebody has looked upon you uh, with great kindly love, whilst at the same time looking at somebody else in a very, very different way. 
and in a baser way. And maybe, for example, you fit very, very well within your family system, and they find you agreeable and likable, and you, you work hard, and you're intelligent, and you have good friendships, and you're, you're just moving from glory to glory, and they really appreciate you. But maybe you're not that way. Maybe you're, uh, you're like many of us, and you have kind of a history, you know, and, and people still see you through your mistakes. And so you don't really fit Within the, uh, within the structure of your family, and therefore you're not shown the, the favor, the compliments, you're not given the nice gifts. But my dad was talking to me recently about how he stayed in sports in high school because he wasn't an amazing student, well, but he was a very good football player. And the teachers knew that if they didn't pass him, he wouldn't be able to stay on the team. All right? Yeah, I know. All right? I'm not a jock, so I never had those benefits. No perks for me. But, um, but he was able to stay on the football team because his teachers passed him all the time, and he remained the star. But I got shown a little bit of favoritism in my own life because of uh, my great-grandfather. He was deeply impressed that I was evidently a pious person going into ministry. That won a lot of points. And so he just one day decided to buy me a Ford Focus, a new Ford Focus. By the way, after having a Ford Focus for two years, I'm not so sure it was a great gift, but the intent was really, really sweet. Um, but that was his way of showing favoritism. And my brother used to say, well, where's my car? And my sister would say, well, where's my car? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. But it was nice to be the favorite, at least for those two years before the transmission went. So, uh, so a little bit of favoritism, right? Well, and this is, uh, this is what's happening. I'm going to begin in verse 2. Verse 1 is about how they're settled in the new territory, their new zip code. Verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Let me unpack that a little bit. So I want you to think if you can remember your biblical history, and if you don't know it, that's all right. But favor... Favor and notions of privilege, even to an unfair degree, run in this family and have for generations. This family is a highly dysfunctional family. I like that, by the way, because it shows that God is not so put off by our sins that he won't enter in. So he's entering into this very complex family. So you have um, Jacob, right, who's also known as Israel. Jacob, who is Joseph's dad. Well, Jacob, as you may know, had a twin brother named Esau. And the parents played favorites with those twins. The father loved Esau because he was like a hunter and a man's man, and he like would strangle deer to death. I added that. And, um, and the mother loved uh, Jacob and used to go to lots of plays with him. Um, I added that. But, um, but they, they had different interests, and the mother favored the one, and the father favored the other. Now, that got in Jacob's subconscious. It got into his bloodstream, so to speak. Well, anyway, Jacob gets married a few times to a few different ladies uh, because he was a polygamist, as almost everybody was back then, at least the men were. And he, uh, the first lady that he married, he wasn't so fond of. He kind of got fooled into marrying her, and her name was Leah. But he had his eyes on this other lady named Rachel, who was a 10, a total 10 in the looks department. And Joseph, Joseph, 
is Rachel's son. So he is the favored son of the favored wife. Well, Joseph realizes this dynamic from the start, that there's a little bit of competition between him and his siblings. And so the text says, and it wants us to see this, that right from the start of this epic, there's bad blood in the family. Because Joseph brings a bad report, a bad report, which could mean anything from righteous tattling to downright slander. And most of the time when that Hebrew word is used in the Bible, it means slander. Against his brothers. Actually, it mentions their mom's names. And those moms were at one time concubines of the father, which is considered like a lower caste. Right? He eventually marries them, but they started off as concubines. And so Joseph is bringing bad reports to dad about them and wants the father to know that he is functioning like a TSA agent, like a supervisor. He is keeping track of what's happening in the fields. He's like a little Patriot Act that follows you everywhere you are and reports to the NSA or the Fed or whatever. He's functioning like a foreman, like a superior. And then we add insult to injury because not only is this dynamic underneath the surface, though perceived by the brothers, it becomes outwardly and externally symbolized by a very fancy Versace outfit. The father has custom made a coat only for one of his sons. The text has a coat of many colors. The problem is the Hebrew is really obscure. It could mean it's very colorful. It could mean it has very long sleeves. Evidently, that's a good thing. Uh, or it could simply mean a royal embroidered robe. We don't know. But the point is, it's a Versace suit. It's a Tom Ford suit. It costs $30,000, right? So he gives the, the, the kid who thinks he's a foreman the $30,000 coat. And this is a status symbol. It's a status symbol that essentially means you are my elect son. I love you in a particularly special way. And I'm giving you this emblem of prestige so that all can see it. More than that, he gives him a garment that puts him, in terms of labor, in a different category than his brothers, right? He doesn't give him a jumpsuit to go work in a factory, and he doesn't give him overalls to work in the fields. Instead, he gives him this emblematic coat that is best suited for lying around on leather couches and drinking mimosas, right? Not working. This is not a working garment. And the problem then is now every time the brothers see Joseph, they think the favor of our father is displayed constantly every single day for us to see and resent. And so the resentment grows. And this got into the brothers' heads to the degree where the text says they could not speak peacefully to him. That's really not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says they could not greet him with shalom. Shalom is a word that is sort of all-encompassing that just means good things, right? Health, prosperity, success, good grades, getting into Princeton, getting a great job, being honest and loyal, all the good things of this life. And they could not wish him God's favor in that way. That's it. That was just a normal greeting, but it was a greeting that would express all of those heartfelt ideas, and they could not speak that word of holistic health to their brother. 
But it not only got into the brother's heads, it got into Joseph's head, quite literally got into his head and started to inform his dreams, or at least inform how those dreams were expressed. And so there we see favoritism, but we also see egotism, egotism. Now, some commentators wish to posit Joseph as this morally neutral figure. They say ah, he's not boasting. After all, he's just talking about dreams that he really had. In fact, he's representing religious truth. He's being a prophet in a way, predicting his own future. And what's so wrong with that? But I don't actually think that's how we're supposed to read the narrative. I think it's a very unlikely reading because we have a strong hint right from the beginning that his character is one of potential slander of his brothers. And more than that, we see egotism in the dreams themselves, at least in how they're communicated. So notice there are two dreams. They're richly symbolic, and they're richly aggrandizing. Now, I want to note, of course, if you, especially if you know the story and how it ends, the dreams are not wrong in what they eventually point to. But sometimes people can prematurely and haphazardly communicate a glorious truth. That is, they can shortcut their way to glory. And I think that is what's happening with Joseph in his dreams, because he tells his brothers his dreams, right? He doesn't do what Mary does in the New Testament. Remember when Mary has angelic visitations and receives great revelation from other people, it says that she ponders those things in her heart. Maybe Joseph would have been better off if he had done that, but he didn't. The first thing he did was tell his brothers and his parents. The first dream he tells his brothers, that's in verse 5 through 8. This is an agricultural dream with typical imagery for these brothers. It was a dream about what happened in their fields on most days, that they were harvesting. This time the harvest looked a little different. Joseph's wheat sheaf was anthropomorphized and was taller than the brothers' wheat sheaves, and theirs bound, bowed down to this younger brother's wheat sheaf. Now, as you may know, within Judaism, the favored brother is always the eldest. In this case, it would have been Reuben. But in this dream, it's this young whippersnapper with the Versace suit who gets all of the praise and adulation and glory. That was the first dream, and they hated him for it. But then there's the second dream, verses 9 through 11. The second dream builds on the themes of the first dream and becomes far more extreme because now it has to do with the heavens. So we began on the earth, right? That's the first dream. Now we're entering the heavens, the second dream. A grander scale, a shift in altitude. Now it's not about wheat in a field. It's about the sun, the moon, the stars. And notice it doesn't say Joseph is the sun. It says the sun, the massive thing, moon slightly smaller, and the stars, at least their cosmology, much smaller, uh, that all of those things were bowing down to Joseph. Do you get the idea? Joseph is bigger than the sun, bigger than the moon, bigger and grander than the stars, and all of those things are bowing down. And this time, his father, Joseph's father, Jacob, offers an interpretation. Essentially, he sees the sun as himself, the father figure, the moon is the mother figure and the stars is the brother figures. And all of them, now brothers and parents, are all bowing down. Now that's confusing because you have the fifth commandment, right? To honor your father and mother. The idea is that you would show deference to your elders. And now the elders are showing deference to the youngest child. And so this is quite an upheaval 
that is being offered in these visions. And I want to say that in a sense, I'm not speaking providentially, but in terms of language, in a sense, these are godless dreams. What do I mean by that? God is never mentioned in the dream. No supernatural being is mentioned in the dream. Not angels, not the Lord. In this vision, the loftiest being is unquestionably Joseph. Everything's bowing down to Joseph. And I want to say this is a very dangerous place to begin a biblical story, at least in how he communicates it. I am not saying that Joseph's dreams didn't involve truth or providence, but at least in these dreams, we know where the glory rests. And in the dreams, the the glory rests on Joseph. But here's what Joseph learns in the rest of his life. And he does learn this lesson. There is no enduring glory without God. There's no enduring glory without God. Without God, the best we can achieve is at the end of our lives, a golden coffin with a snuffed out candle. But Joseph's expectation, at least at this point, seems to be a smooth path to personal glory. But I remember something that Carl Jung once said uh, when he wrote, beware of unearned wisdom. Beware of unearned wisdom. The same thing could be said of glory. Beware of unearned glory. Where you think that all of these things will come to you because you're such a terrific individual and that you, in some sense, deserve all of the good that life can dish out. But we know from the rest of the story that Joseph, in just a few verses, will end up in a pit, end up in slavery, and end up in Egypt. He he will have to hobble through hell in order to get to a place in which he can have the glory. So... That's some favoritism and some egotism that is part of this or woven into this narrative. Now, let me say something about favoritism as an applying word to us today. The Bible does not deny the existence of what we could call privilege or favoritism. In fact, the Old Testament has a legal category for it. You may know that the firstborn son gets the lion's share of the parent's estate. That's just how the ancient world ordered things, and Judaism was no exception in that way. And while we may not have that pattern in our contemporary world, at least many people don't, we have other forms of of privilege and power and favor that we didn't earn. And it may be your social standing. Maybe you inherited wealth. Uh, Maybe you were born into a very supportive family. Maybe you had great education. Maybe you were able to uh, get an amazing job because you had connections that provided them. Uh, Maybe you have a skin tone that doesn't uh, get the same kind of uh, squinted eyes and criticism that other skin tones do. Maybe you're uh, part of the ascendant political party. Uh, Maybe you have have quick wit. Maybe you're tall. Maybe maybe you're good-looking. Maybe you're not bald. But you have certain things that are going for you that you didn't earn. You just got them. But my question isn't so much whether or not we are privileged or lack privilege in 800 different areas in our lives. The question is, if we do get these, if we have breathtaking insights from God about the reality of living or or, or we have a lofty position or we have a little power, the question is, what do we do with it? And I think there's an example that's been given to us by the one who was called the firstborn of all creation. In other words, the person with the loftiest status, the person with the most privilege in terms of his placement within 
the universe. That is Jesus Christ. How did he function? How did he act given all of his status and favoritism? Well, we know that Jesus, the God-man, the incarnate Lord, had more favor than the sun, than the moon, than the stars, than we chiefs, and than Joseph. In fact, the Bible, very early in its New Testament composition, calls Jesus equal to God. What did he do with that privilege of being equal to God? Well, Philippians 2 tells us, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant and offered his life even unto death, death on a cross. He embodied this principle of the highest can give away prestige and power to help people that lack those things. More than that, he wanted us to emulate that geist, that spirit, that sensibility, because he said, uh, and we had it in our gospel reading today, that the greatest among you is the one who serves, not the one who seeks after crowns and glory and titles, but the one who serves. And so let me conclude with just these three remarks now about what happens if we inherit a little bit of favoritism. First, let's carry our privilege, power, and favoritism humbly. Let's see it as a gift that we did not earn, not a salary that we are due. The good things in our lives, at least most of them, have come to us. Uh, remember what Michael Scott said in the show The Office? He said, I've learned that the best things in life are never worked for. They just show up. Right? And there's a lot of truth to that. It's certainly true in the salvific gift of the cross. What did you do to get that? What did I do to get that? What did we do to earn the blood? Nothing. We were running the other way. It's while we were sinners that Christ laid his life down, and that's the foundation of our legitimacy entirely and always. So we carry that privilege humbly. Second, we use privilege, power, and status to bring dignity and relief to those who have less than we do. That is, we have eyes to look inside the pit, and there are many pits all around us that people fall into. And we don't say, we don't automatically say, well, the reason they're in that pit is because they're stupid, or they're immoral, or they're a wretch, or they didn't make the right choices. No, we don't do that. Because we know that we could easily fall into a pit too, just like Joseph did. But we want to use the resources that we have to bring dignity to all these image bearers around us, these treasures of heaven all around us. Yeah. And this is what happened with Abraham, by the way. Abraham was blessed not to contain the blessing, but Abraham was blessed to bless all the nations and families of the whole earth. And that's why God blesses you, so that it's not contained in you, but in fact given to other people. And lastly, um, the path to glory that is, the acquiring of the great reconstructive dream of our lives. That is, we all want to be healthy, don't we? We all want to have enough money to make ends meet and go on a nice vacation to Colorado. I mean, I do. Uh, we all want to um, live without a, an illness. Uh, we all want to have good relationships with our family. We want the shalom of God. We want the great restoration that Joseph, in some ways, was dreaming about. But I think the path to that kind of glory is only through a difficult detoxification. I think Joseph needed to be detoxified. I think he needed to go into rehab. And I think that's what most of the rest of the narrative tells us. Why do we need a detoxification? Why can't we just rush into glory? 
because without a detoxification, friends, sin would co-opt our visions of glory and turn them into a tyrannical hell. If we just had the glory on our own terms and we became Lord and master over it, we would become abusive people, dreadful, terrible. We need instead to have our souls and consciences and hearts forgiven and loved back into life so that we would approach glory rightly. So here's a a little example of this, and then I'm done. An example of people who walk through hell into a new glorious place, a wider place, a God-saturated place. And this will be a preview of things to come with Joseph. So Chuck Colson, whom you may know through his Watergate infamy, dedicated uh, himself after he left prison to prison ministry and getting chaplains into prisons. And Colson writes about his uh, one-time visit to the Hamaida prison in Brazil. Some years ago, the Brazilian government turned this particular prison over to two Christians. And the plan was to run the prison based on redemptive ideas from Christianity. And the prison only has two full-time staff, and the rest of the work is done by the inmates. They cook, they clean, they keep watch. And then Colson writes this. When I visited Hamaida, I found the inmates smiling, particularly the murderer who held the keys, opened the gates, and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas, people working industriously. The walls were beautiful, clean, decorated with biblical sayings from the Psalms and the Proverbs. My guide escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. It isn't anymore. Today, he told me, the torture cells house only a single inmate. He swung open the massive door slowly, and I saw the prisoner in that cell. A simple crucifix carved by the Hamaida inmates. The prisoner was Jesus, hanging on the cross. And then the inmate said, he's doing time for the rest of us. And each prisoner here is a free man, even a happy man, because of him. These bars do not define us. We are sons of God, for he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen.